Time in Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, seafood and eggs. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Gregory Cochran, who will discuss human evolution. So, stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good, actually. Weather's starting to turn for the better. For me, I've been eating a lot of seafood. Well, you know, seafood is supposedly very good for you. Also, I guess we drink green tea. You heard about that study, right, in the UK where surveying tea drinkers and the ones that drank scalding hot tea had a higher incidence of throat cancer. Oh, yes. That's been shown around the world. Basically, if you drink a lot of hot liquids, it irritates your esophageal lining. Mm-hmm. So in Solenda, it turns out that among Asians, there's a higher incidence of esophagus cancer because of the hot soup and liquids that we drink here, which hmm. is probably why it's okay to slurp noodles. So keep on slurping your noodles, though. <laughs> I haven't been, but I guess I'll start now. Okay, so yeah, speaking of seafood, one story comes from Australia, actually, and a researcher, Brian Fry, has discovered that all octopus, and in fact squids and cephalopods, have a venomous poison in them. To some extent, they have some chemicals that could disable the nervous system of some animal, but in the case of the blue ring octopus, that's the one that's the deadliest for humans. Okay. Is its venom uh, more toxic in some fashion? happens that that particular venom is poisonous to human whereas for other their venom kill clams or other animals i see so what this shows is that all the cephalopods may have come from a common ancestor at some point and that if there's such diversity in venoms they could also be used for treating possible diseases in people including allergies i see uh, what they're suggesting is that they use this particular venom in a much more diluted concentration well or... not this particular one but they can modify the other ones or look at the other diverse set of venoms that are found in other octopus for pharmacological properties basically the next generation of botox or something it's possible it could be coming from your sushi <laughs> thicker fuller lips then just go get some uh, maguro tuna eh? or the uh, fugu maybe uh... <laughs> could be your last one though I think it does swell your body if you uh, eat the wrong part. So I've heard. You also stop breathing, too. (laughs) Anyways, this is cool stuff. It was reported in the Journal of Molecular Evolution. And the other kind of cool story is that it turns out crustaceans can feel pain. Well, I mean, everybody feels pain in some sense. That's sort of existential ennui, I think. (laughs) But it turns out they've done tests with these hermit crabs, and it's been shown that if you shock them, they have a memory of experience. Well, I mean, having a memory of uh, some experience and feeling pain is two separate issues. Right, but indicating that if you do not kill your food completely, it still retains that experience. And the issue here is that animal rights activists are concerned that we're giving them undue pain. (laughs) Anyways, I I think this is one reason why Whole Foods has decided to not boil your lobsters for you anymore. (laughs) 
Well, since I'm not really shopping at Whole Foods anyway because I'm not, you know, willing to spend $10 for an apple, it doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> not that Whole Foods is expensive or anything, but... It is. <laughs> <laughs> and this was reported in my new favorite journal, Animal Behavior. Ooh. Okay, well, so it seems like we're talking a lot about food. Uh, do you like eggs? Unscrambled. It defies uh, the laws of thermodynamics, you know. <laughs> well, how do you like your ovarian eggs? Well, you know, I, I presume I would want them to be fertile when I'm ready, but well, for what, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, and there's a long-held belief that female mammals start life with a limited number of eggs, and they can't mm. produce new ones after they're born. Okay, so each month they lose one or two eggs. Right. At least that's the conventional view. But recent work in 2004 by biologist Jonathan Tilley and his colleagues at Harvard Medical School challenged this because they said that in mice, the oocytes in the mice ovaries, they die much too quickly for a limited supply to last a whole lifetime. So this would suggest that, in fact, females continue to produce new eggs throughout their lifetime. As they get older. Right. You know, they didn't have any real proof of that. But now some researchers over in China have looked and they've seen that, in fact, there may be evidence that this is true. Reproductive biologist Ji Wu and her colleagues at Shanghai Jiao Tong University in China used a technique where they were able to isolate some cells from fertile mice and put them in infertile mice and show that these cells now were able to produce eggs in the infertile mice. Oh, cool. And, yeah, well, at least to give rise to fertile offspring in the transplanted mice. Mm-hmm which suggests that the cells from the fertile mice are capable of generating cells throughout the lifetime of the female organism. Could this possibly lead to fertility treatments? Right, so that's the idea, is that perhaps this technology at some point then can be exploited and used to uh, help in humans. I guess the world doesn't have enough people, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And if not, we'll just colonize Mars, or dig to the center of the Earth. Either way, it should be fine. Yeah, there's like some hidden universe underneath our soil, right? Uh, I think the Morlocks have it right. And there's actually a sun at the center of the planet. <laughs> it would be if those uh, guys at CERN turn on their uh, super collider soon. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, actually. And, yeah, I'm uh, hoping they'll accidentally create some sort of wormhole or black hole. And... We can travel into the future, and the future guys can travel into the past. But that has absolutely nothing to do with this paper, which was published in uh, a recent edition of Nature Cell Biology. <laughs> And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Gregory Cochran will join us to discuss human evolution. So stay tuned. To the Grok's Science Show. Well, the explanatory power of the theory of evolution is often viewed from a distance when it comes to the recent history of humans. Indeed, some may wonder whether natural selection has played any role in recent human history. But contrary to this view, recent evidence is suggesting that it may be a prime driver of human history and is in fact accelerating. 
Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Gregory Cochran. Professor Cochran is a physicist and adjunct professor of anthropology at the University of Utah, author of numerous scientific articles and popular works on the subject. His new book, The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Cochran, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Okay. Well, this is really a very fascinating book regarding uh, the acceleration of human evolution. You can first explain what is the conventional view regarding human evolution? No view is shared by everybody. There's probably some spectrum of views. But a lot of people in areas like archaeology, anthropology, and sometimes in genetics take the attitude that human evolution stopped at some convenient time in the past, which is why everybody's exactly alike today, although they have trouble explaining why people don't look alike, different populations and so forth. For example, Colin Renfrew done a lot of work in European prehistory. He has a book out that came out last year, and he just states that human evolution just stopped 60,000 years ago. I think sometimes it involves mistakes that are a little less obvious, but not much, one thing that many people have said is as people developed more tools, better technology, somehow that shielded us from all the forces of nature so we didn't have to evolve anymore. But truthfully, the only thing that would stop evolution is if somehow everything had stayed exactly the same. Even then, there probably would have been some changes. But to the extent that if we've already been doing something a long, long time, let's say be hunter-gatherers, and then we stayed being hunter-gatherers, and then the weather didn't change, and every possible thing stopped changing, that's probably the closest you could come to evolutionary stasis. But since none of that happened, since people didn't stay hunter-gatherers, since the Ice Age changed, since people settled new parts of the world, in fact, there was a lot of change. And even when you have a new technological thing, that's a change. So, for example, if you don't need as much strength to do something as you used to, because you have, say, the bow and arrow, you start selecting probably for less strength since the, the payoffs are different now? There are a lot of people say it, and I guess it would be a simplifying assumption, except I don't think it's particularly true. Since some of these things have a lot of practical importance, sometimes even today, and a lot for, for recorded history, I would say one of the more sort of obvious ones is that people who developed agriculture in the old world, populations got denser. This happened a little earlier than in other parts of the world. I mean, agriculture was developed also in the new world, but somewhat later. But when populations got denser, and when people domesticate a lot of animals, they got exposed to a lot of new diseases. And eventually, people developed defenses so they could at least manage to exist in the situation where these new exist diseases happened. But when people who were hardened against these things landed at uh, Plymouth Rock and ran into people who had much less disease resistance, it had big consequences. There's estimates that perhaps as many as 90% of the American Indian population disappeared shortly after contact with the explorers, largely from new diseases, such, new to them, things such as smallpox. And that's historically a pretty important thing, is when you land somewhere and all the local people just fall over. And, I mean, this was sort of argued in Jared Diamond's book that the different evolutionary histories of European and the Native American populations led to the easy conquest. Of oh, yeah. The... I'm not the only person who said it. I'm just emphasizing, and, and by the way, Diamond agrees on evolution of disease resistance. Some of the examples we know pretty well down to the molecular level, like we know a lot about malaria resistance, things like sickle cell. We know more about the consequences of differential susceptibility to things like smallpox. We don't know as much about the molecular basis, and we're afraid to study it for good reason. <laughs> smallpox now only exists in a couple of heavily guarded labs. But in his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, he more or less assumed that that was the only thing that changed, was disease resistance. But clearly, it's basically been many things. 
you know, it can be personality, it can be intelligence, it can be disease resistance, it could be your life history, how fast you mature or how long you live. As long as the payoffs are different in different situations, there's going to be some response to that over time. You talk about some of the evidence regarding acceleration of human evolution, in particular this uh, single nucleotide polymorphism data. Yeah, that's it. Ask me the hardest one. <laughs> the, uh, what, what people find is that there's a lot of regions of the human genome that look surprisingly uniform in many people. They look as if they haven't been shuffled. Essentially, there is a process like shuffling, recombination, that happens a, a, a bit each generation. And from what we generally know, you should expect most regions of the genome to look heavily shuffled, as if they have time to be recombined between different individuals. But if you have, for example, a, a new improvement, a mutation that has a positive effect, these are not very common, but they're very important, that one will spread, or at least with any luck, it will spread with time, and eventually a lot of people can have it. And this can happen rapidly enough that a lot of people have essentially the same pattern around that particular mutation, extending to some distance on either side. You know, one of the famous examples in European and some other populations is a mutation that lets adults drink milk. And there's a region about a million bases wide that's essentially the same in hundreds of millions of people. It has increased rapidly enough that it hasn't had time to be reshuffled very much over that region. And they find many regions like this. Now, some people are arguing that another way to get something common like this is if Suppose there were only 100 humans at some point, and then a couple of those people had a lot of kids. That might be overrepresented. We're talking long-term bottlenecks. But I think that long-term bottlenecks with populations on the order of, say, 100 or 1,000, for most parts of the world, that's kind of unlikely. It doesn't fit what we know of the archaeological record. I mean, there's no sign that people almost went extinct over and over or stayed close to extinct for a long time. By the way, it's hard to stay close to extinct for a long time. You're more likely to just go extinct. But there certainly is some bottlenecking because like when you have a, some island is settled by a very few people, there will be a patterns that can be hard to distinguish in terms of selection. By the way, in fact, you could well have both selection and drift, statistical random things happening at the same time. It would be hard to sort them out. But I believe there's a way we're going to be able to sort these out a lot better. And I think probably we'll get a consensus maybe in about five or ten years. And that way is by Looking at the genomes of people who've been dead for different lengths of time, we have the ability to do this to some extent. People have, for example, looked at skeletons of about seven to 8,000 years old in Europe, and they were looking for this lactose tolerance variant, the one that lets you drink milk as an adult. And seven to 8,000 years ago, it wasn't there yet. Now, today, it's extremely common, 80% plus in northern Europe, but back then it wasn't there. And people have also looked a little at an intermediate time about 3,000 years ago, and there it was there, but at lower frequencies than today. But if you can find evidence of steady growth over time for some of these things, that will remove the question as to whether there was some strange bottleneck that generated it. So I think there's a lot of museums in Europe that have all sorts of skeletons that are that no one's been very interested because these are not really old. These are not back in the times of the first humans in Europe. These are not Neanderthal skeletons. These are just a skeleton somebody found. It might be 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years old. But they're going to be very valuable because with these we'll be able to see the time trends. And we won't have to argue about what the population history was like, and we won't have to argue about bottlenecks. We'll just be able to see. I think this will happen in a lot of places. But I would say, on the whole, everybody agrees there's been a fair amount of selection. People argue about how just how much. I think everybody's talking about more than today than anyone was talking about five years ago. 
Well, the interesting thing about this lactose tolerance that you mentioned is that it sort of enabled a lot of the conquerors of agrarian societies. Well, we think there's a fair case to be made that it played some role there. I hope mm-hmm. I'm conservative enough when I say it that way. I mean, a reasonable place for where the European version located would be somewhere in the middle of its current distribution, and that would be somewhere in Russia, which is roughly where the Indo-European peoples, the people who spoke the language that's the ancestor of, that half the people in the world speak today, most of the languages of Europe, almost all, and many of the languages of India, Persian, etc. We know some things about when they expanded. We know a little bit about their way of life, but we don't know, for example, why they expanded. Why were they somehow have an advantage over their neighbors. And we suggest that if they were one of the first populations that had a high frequency of this ability to drink milk, they could have had a different kind of economy, one that they're basically raising cattle and then drinking the milk rather than killing the cattle, and that's much more productive. Mm. If you produce five times as much food per acre as your neighbors, there's this strange tendency to win the wars that you do have. And everybody has wars. So and the other thing is this looks as if this may have happened a couple of other times because in East Africa, there are also populations that have high frequencies of the ability to digest milk as adult. For example, the Tutsi in Rwanda are 90% able to do this. But these are different mutations that happened later and spread in a different population. But these guys were also cattle herders, and they expanded too, not as far as the Indo-Europeans, but from the Sudan, at least down to, say, Uganda and Rwanda. Mm. And there's a third example that, that, that may matter, which is the desert Arabs also have a high frequency of yet another mutation that lets you drink milk. And that one was probably linked to the domestication of the camel. So it certainly has got to help if you have a fundamentally better food supply than you used to. And it, it helps even more if you have it and some of the other neighbors don't, at least at first. Hmm. I mean, this is a kind of a different view of genes as rather than uh, being markers of human development, more the instigators. Really. Well, I think you can use them either way. I mean, some things probably haven't changed much, or if the changes they have probably don't matter much, and those are good for markers. Mm-hmm. So we can see what population, you know, where they originated from usually. You get some decent information from this, but I think our point is that some of the, at least some of the biggest changes will also drive history of themselves. I mean, if you have enough changes in disease resistance, say, in Eurasians or the old worlders compared to the new worlders, that changes history. Or you could say that in parts of the New World that were tropical and warm and where a lot of the African diseases were able to spread, things like malaria and yellow fever, after a while, when people brought over slaves, they brought over Africans because no one else could do the work there. You know, that's why places like Haiti and Cuba have a large black population. So, you know, it's it's shaped history in many ways. In your book, you have the agriculture as being the big change. Well, there were a number of changes, but this is certainly the biggest I think, in terms of how much people's way of life changed. You know, if you go back 20,000 years, as far as we know, everybody on Earth was hunter-gatherers, people that hunted animals to varying extents, mostly men doing that, that gathered plants and small animals, which was mostly women and children. Division of labor varied some from place to place. If you're somewhere really cold, hunting was probably the major story. Somewhere warmer, uh, gathering plant food might be most of the calories. But, you know, they didn't have cities, they didn't have towns, they didn't sit in one place very long, they didn't have kings or taxes, they didn't have really complicated social organizations, pretty different. They ate different things. They ate a much more mixed diet, one with a lot less, fewer carbohydrates, and they weren't crowded. They got diseases, but not nearly as much as people later. Mm-hmm. If you think of all the changes, I said, you have, you're eating something different, you're getting sick a lot more from different things, and you also have completely different and more complex social organizations. 
I guess you could have changed more, for, say, if we'd moved to another planet. But it's a big change. But there are other changes, too. I mean, the end of the Ice Age is a major change. But climate change is all over the world, mostly in a way we like. But that, too, was a change. But I think this was probably the biggest and the strangest, in a sense, doing something people ended up doing things that are very different than what they did before. One of the issues you talk about uh, addressing the controversial issue you brought up in a 2005 paper regarding IQ and uh, Ashkenazi Jews. We think that there was, and this sounds strange to people, that the, the idea you could have, you know, a people could change over a period of, say, 1,000 or 1,500 years. But what we think happened is that by sort of falling into an odd social niche, the European Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, were more or less accidentally selected for higher intelligence, and after long enough, they had higher, somewhat higher intelligence than the other groups around them, largely because they were working different jobs pretty much than anyone else. The great majority of all their jobs were white-collar jobs. That wasn't true of any other major group in Europe. I mean, most people were farmers. They had to be, but not in this group. And the other thing, which is a little different from today, is the more successful you were at it, the more kids people raised. This was true for Europe generally, but the point is they were being successful at different things. But that's a little anti-intuitive because today nobody's surprised if the president, for example, has one kid or something. But in the old days, if you were rich and powerful, or even just rich, or even just feeling okay, those people raised about as many kids as they could feed. Hmm. And so making more money. And this had a direct impact. This seems to have been true in many other places, although probably not everywhere. I mean, not everywhere had the same kind of society. And also, you were succeeding at different things. A successful farmer was succeeding at a different thing than being a, a successful merchant. But, of course, part of the other side of this, which is another thing which somehow people don't remember, is that if you were unsuccessful, you probably couldn't raise two kids. You know, the poorer parts of society, they were really poor. I mean, that meant in a bad year, you starved to death, or some of your kids did. This happened a lot. It happened in you know, fairly recent times. For example, I think it was around 1709 or so in France. They had a couple of bad years in a row, bad crop years. And France, which you don't think of as a super backward, super poor country, 10% of the population starved to death. And, and that's you know, fairly recently. We think in Europe in general, most of the time, the people who were less successful were kind of genetically shrinking. And the people who were more economically successful were having more children, becoming a higher fraction of the population. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing is true in East Asia. I think that uh, if you were in China, suppose you didn't own any land, it was hard to break even. I mean, the population as a whole in most of these places was staying close to even. If some people were doing better than average, somebody else had to be doing worse. Mm -hmm. But I think this is hard for Americans to relate to because... Truthfully, America has never been a place where we have famine. I mean, there's been times when things were kind of tight, like in the Great Depression, but, you know, famine, it hasn't happened in the history of the United States. You know, we worry about the problems of obesity, but historically, <laughs> that's not really the biggest problem humans have faced. Right. What are consequences to this evolution is really accelerating in modern life? Well, we're still selecting for something. It's probably not the same thing that we were selecting for 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Again, most parts of the world, famine is not as important as it was. Most places, it's pretty much gone. Today, economic success, if anything, is probably making you have fewer kids. So we're probably still having selection, but probably sometimes the direction has changed. Mm. May not necessarily in a way we'd really like if we saw the outcome hundreds of years from now, but it's still going on because there's still... Some people have a bunch of kids and some people have few. And as long as any of the factors that influence that are to some extent genetic, well, then selection's going on. But the other thing is, is it probably explains some of the differences you know, that were generated in the past between different groups of people today.
And that's probably worth understanding for a number of reasons. Not that we understand it very well, but I think that this general way of looking at it will contribute to understanding it. Well, it is a really a, a very fascinating view, and uh, the new book is called The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. Uh, Dr. Cochran, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Okay, thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Gregory Cochran discussing human evolution. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Then comes the day, but now I am the proudest monkey you ever seen. All right, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic highly evolved or still evolving. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're highly evolved or still evolving, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Professor Cochran, you're ready to play the game. Oh, God, I'll try. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, uh, person number one, highly evolved or still evolving, Bill Gates. Hmm. He's very good at what he does, but I, I, but he's only got two children. He, I mean, evolution is operating on him, but not in a very positive way. He's an example of how things have changed at the Middle Ages. If in the old days he would have had, God, 10,000 children, I would guess. <laughs> Too evolved. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, person number two is conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh. You do give me tough questions. <laughs> uh, I don't think he has any children at all. Evolutionarily, you know, people like him must be shrinking. Mm. Uh, evolved? I don't know. He's got a lot higher ratings than I do. I'll say evolved. By uh, the way, evolved and not evolved are not the same as saying good or bad. Okay. <laughs> there's no value judgment there. <laughs> um, it's, you know, there's, evolution is whatever works. That's the motto. Indeed. All right, well, uh, we're going to highly evolved or still evolving. Uh, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. I don't think he has any kids either. So I guess I put him in the same category with Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that's probably the only time they've ever been in the same category. <laughs> probably, yeah. All right. Uh, number four is uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Well, at least he has a few kids. And he's, he's also shown, you know, everybody knows that the right way to make $100 million is to inherit $200 million. <laughs> He uh, still evolving. He's, at least he's in the game. Okay. All right. And finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, he's an interesting example because one of the, as I point out in the book, one of the most interesting things can happen is when you take alleles from different groups because you can end up with something that was better than either or worse. We're going to have to find out. But he will bring some qualities that we haven't seen before, although whether any of them have anything to do with being president, I don't know. Okay. But, you know, it's, if, when you mix groups in the long run, whatever works best floats to the top. Mm-hmm. And he has two very nice daughters, so he's at least playing the game. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Cochran, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around to play the game and, of course, talking about your new book, which is The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thank you. Welcome back to Grox. And now here is Captain James Kirk with this week's Question of the Week. Captain? I am Picard. Oh, I'm sorry. How dare you confuse me with that young <laughs> epidemic fool. Okay, Captain Picard. So I want to know, do all time zones start on the hour? Well, Commander LaForge, a very astute question indeed. In fact, they don't start all on the hour. Say Nepal, it starts at 45 past the hour. Very fascinating if you need to engage the Ferengi. Wow, that extra 45 minutes then, huh? The line is drawn here. 
Okay, Captain, I'm not arguing with you. And that's why time zones are not exactly starting on the hour every hour. Hey, thanks a lot, Captain. Engage. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.